Well, good morning. Today we're continuing our series called We Are Church, looking at what it means to be the church. And as I look to the title of today's sermon, A Call Not a Convenience, and then the Bible readings as well, I was reminded of a young man called Sam. I met Sam in my first year as a trainee youth pastor. He was 14 years old and was in my high school youth group. And I was at a church just outside of Liverpool in England. Now, if you're wondering where that is... Let me help you out here. Here's the the motherland, as I like to call it. No offense, but you know, the motherland. And uh, in case you're wondering where Liverpool is, zoom in a bit. Here's London, okay, so down in the sort of southern corner or southeastern corner. There's Liverpool up there in the northeast. Sorry, London's southwest, uh, southeast, northwest. And then it's about 220 miles. So it's about like driving to Charlotte, I guess, a little bit, maybe a little bit further. And this, you can't quite see, the arrow doesn't really help, but there's a little town called Heswell just outside of Liverpool, and that's where I was. And Heswell was kind of a small town, about the size of Daniel Island, actually, about 10,000 people or so. There's the main high street. There's the local pub. Spent some time there. Um, There's there's one of our churches where I worked. That's the Church of the Good Shepherd. That was a church plant at the top of the town. It was on a hill. And then there is the mother church, um, St. Peter's. Okay, that's an old, thousand-year-old church. Now, Sam wasn't particularly sporty, okay? He was a talented musician, and he could play any instrument that you would throw at him. But most of all, he loved to play the electric guitar. And much to my delight, he was a big fan of... Oh, here I, sorry, here I am. This is the youth group, or one of the youth groups. And that's me, in case you're wondering who's who. <laughs> there I am. He loved U2, okay? That was his favorite band. So we shared a mutual love, and so we'd play their songs together, because I play the guitar too. And Sam used his talents by playing lead guitar in the church, praised him. But he was also in a band made up of youth group members as well, a sort of a more secular band, four teenagers who would write their own surprisingly good music for 15 and 16-year-olds. One time, they even won a band competition judged by Paul McCartney's brother. Well, Sam also had a wicked sense of humor and an infectious laugh as well. He was quiet, but he was popular, and he was fun to hang out with. I liked him a lot, but then so did everybody else in the youth group as well. What I didn't realize at first, though, was that Sam's home life was falling apart. His mom and his dad were beginning to argue a lot, and ultimately, their marriage was falling apart. I only really found out that the day that I got a call from another youth leader who was my supervisor, and she told me that Sam's dad had walked out, leaving him, his mom, and his younger brother to fend for themselves. You know, it was devastating for Sam, as you could imagine, for any child. And I can still remember driving over to pick him up and then taking him back to the home of the family where I was living and just being with him. And it was painful. It was really painful. Sam was sobbing, and he was hard to console. And I spent a lot of time just sitting with him, listening. And it was like that for hours and hours. In fact, the whole of that weekend. And then each time I would see him again and try to comfort him, it felt like it was having very little effect. It actually became grueling. And eventually, if I'm really honest, I didn't look forward to seeing Sam. It was so draining. I really had to muster up the energy over there, to drive over there again and again, to spend time with him, to talk, to pray, to encourage, and ultimately to uh, not show him that I didn't really want to be there. You know, the incident had a profound impact upon me. You see, I realized the cost of truly caring for other people. And I started to be more guarded about how much I would actually give of myself to people. My heart had actually become a little bit hardened in the midst of that. And as I I didn't know how to deal with all of this, 
It also contributed to early burnout in pastoral ministry for me within a year or so. Now, I don't think that I'm alone in experiencing this kind of thing. You know, there's a reticence, isn't there, to help other people after helping someone in need in a significant way. I'm sure that many of you have seen this happen within your own families, perhaps, or your church, or your workplace, your school, or maybe your wider community. You feel called to help someone going through a crisis in life, and then you realize just what you've gotten yourself into. And soon it seems like you're so enmeshed in a situation that you actually can't get out of it, even if you want to. You feel drained, and you feel overwhelmed, and you feel increasingly tired. But what are you to do? Surely it is the right thing to help, right? After all, isn't that what God's Word teaches us? Love your neighbor and even love your enemy too. And what was it that we read in Proverbs today? We read this. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. Proverbs 27. Today, as we continue our series called We Are Church, we're going to look at how we can live out this call to love each other well, even when it isn't convenient, and even when it's costly. And what we'll see is that we are to carry each other's burdens as the Lord carries ours. We are to carry each other's burdens as the Lord carries ours. So let's turn to our scripture sheets uh, for today. You can find them on the inside of your announcement announcement, uh, bulletin and see what God would say to us if we are willing to listen to him. And we're going to focus primarily on the reading from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And in verses 19 and 20, we read this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, when we see a therefore in Scripture, what do we ask? What's it there for, right? We ask, what's it there for? And normally this involves looking backwards at previous verses, previous passages. But actually, this time it involves looking forwards because it's laid out for us in our passage. The author is going to remind them of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Listen, he's saying to them. He says, listen up, okay? You have got nothing to fear, nothing to fear. By dying on the cross, by sacrificing his very own body, Jesus has made a way for you to be in God's very presence. You can pray and he will hear you and you will be with him. Not only this, But he serves us now and he ministers to our needs now. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he's ministering to all the people of God. That's his church, you and me. And what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we, the church, well, we should draw near to God. This is no longer just the privilege of a few priests in the temple who would go and do their duty uh, each year, but everyone can draw near. Everybody in this room can draw near to God. Listen to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You've repented of your sins. You've been baptized. You're living for Jesus. And there is integrity to your motives, knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, no thing, past present, future. Jesus has made the one sacrifice that's required to make his church spotless. Now you are always his, always. But what else should we do? Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. As Christ is always faithful to us, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, so we, the church, are called to remain faithful to our initial decision to follow Jesus. It's a call to persevere, friends, 
and it's a call to witness to who Jesus is. The commentator Raymond Brown puts it like this. In a society like ours where Christ is not honored, where God's word is widely dismissed as either incredible or unattractive, believers must be firm and unswerving in the confession of their hope. Don't sit on the fence. Don't hedge your bets. Don't be lukewarm in your faith. However you want to put it, the call is to be committed to Jesus, Jesus first in all things, and to profess our faith boldly wherever we might go and whenever we're given the chance. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Not only this, but there's one more thing we need to do as the church, and this is where it gets real, friends. Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Challenge each other. Worship with each other. This is what he's saying. Encourage one another. This is the call, and it is not convenient, friends. And when we truly live into it, it messes with our lives and our plans. First of all, it messes with our schedules, doesn't it? It messes with our work when we truly live as the church. It messes with our vacations. It messes with our weekends away. It messes with things like travel, sports, heaven forbid, and more, okay? These can all be messed up by this kind of commitment. It messes with our friendships. Maybe we have to gently call someone out. And so we risk losing a friendship for their sake and for the sake of the gospel. It messes with our families. Maybe they don't like it when we prioritize our church community over a family event or sports or vacations, etc., etc. It messes with our wants uh, because they start to take second place. Maybe our desire to leave a church and start shopping around because we have a conflict with someone that we don't want to resolve or perhaps we just don't like the music on Sunday mornings or even the preaching, right? Messes with our bank accounts. We realize that our money is no longer our own, but it belongs to God and each person in that room and is therefore his to use how he pleases. And we have to bring all our financial decisions before him. It even messes with our bodies. It can be wearying loving other people, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Yes, it is costly and it is not convenient being a part of the church. But this... All of you, this gathering of the body of Christ here with these brothers and sisters around us is the place where we are recharged as we enter the holy place. And as we do this in community each week, we are strengthened to go out and to love others well. John Wesley, the famous Anglican preacher and Methodist, often reminded his followers of the words of a friend. This friend said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Pastor Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, writes this, While your relationship with Christ is personal, God never intends it to be private. In God's family, you are connected to every other believer, and we will belong to each other for eternity. Or as an American, Canadian, Australian friend of mine, yes, they exist, likes to succinctly put it, church is not a drop-in center. It's not a drop-in center. You see, these people understand the true meaning behind Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, that once we repent and we respond to the call to follow Jesus, we've become a part of his body, the body of Christ. 
We are inextricably linked to one another in ways we aren't even connected to our blood relatives. Do you hear that? We're inextricably linked in ways we aren't even connected to our blood relatives. And so one Christian cannot say to the other, I don't need you. I don't need you. Or I'm no longer choosing to be in fellowship with you. And this is particularly important within the local church. That's the body of believers within which God puts us to live out our daily lives. And notice, notice how I say that it's God who puts us here. Yes, we might think that we're church shopping, right? And that we chose this place. But ultimately, it's God who puts you here for a reason. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German martyr, one of my heroes, he wrote a book called Life Together. And it's a Christian classic that I recommend that you read if you want to understand what it means to live in Christian community. In it, he recounts his unique fellowship in a Christian community, an underground seminary during the Nazi years in Germany. You see, they weren't allowed to meet. Sharing from his experiences in this book of living together in this way, he gives practical advice on how life together in Christ can be sustained in families and groups. And he too challenges the notion of a solitary or private faith. And it's all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all about the cross, the central defining event of the Christian faith, but also of all of human history. Bonhoeffer writes this, you are called into the community of faith. The call was not meant for you alone. Notice it's a call, okay? It's not just something you choose, you're called. You carry your cross, you struggle, and you pray in the community of faith the community of those who are called. He goes on, the Christian must bear the burden of a brother or sister. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. The burden of men was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ. But he bore them as a mother carries her child, as a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that has been found. God took men upon himself, and they weighted him to the ground. But God remained with them, and they with God. And then finally, in bearing with men, God maintained fellowship with them. It was the law of Christ that was fulfilled in the cross, and Christians must share in this law. The problem is that many of us have these myths about what church really is. We tend to think of church as a social club, right? It's nothing to do with a cross. It's about a social club where we perhaps gather every so often when we feel like it. We pay our dues, we come, we have, you know, dinner, if you will, Holy Communion, and, uh, and then we go about our way and maybe we come, yes, on our own schedule. Maybe we see it as an entertainment center, okay? It's a place where we're entertained each week and then we leave perhaps feeling better about ourselves. Maybe we see it as a place of education. I come to store up knowledge in my head to learn more about faith, and yet perhaps I never put it into practice. Maybe we see it as a place where we do our duty, much like Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts, right? I've got my duty. I'm going to come. I'm going to say the oath, the pledge, and so on, and then I'm going to walk out of here having done my dutiful obedience. But you see, church is none of those things. Church, ultimately, as we've talked about, is family, right? It's family. It's people together living interconnected lives, not able to say to each other, you know, I don't need you. Family is costly, isn't it? 
Family is inconvenient. Family is not something you can just cast off to the side. No, family is about all the time, all the time being together. Notice what Jesus said in this um, story in Mark chapter 3. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, Who are my brother and my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Those are pretty powerful words, aren't they? Now, Jesus isn't saying that your family isn't important. Don't make that mistake, okay, and say, well, clearly they're not important. No, no, he's just saying that your Christian family is as important as those people who are blood relatives to you. And I think this is somewhere that we get lost as Christians. We often start to forget that these brothers and sisters around me are as important. And so we tend to say, well, I don't need to prioritize them. My blood family comes first, and therefore anything that I do with them is a priority. But actually what Jesus is teaching is that if you're a part of him, you've been adopted into his family, and these brothers and sisters around you are equally as important. They are family to us. Now, why do I pick a a picture of a bunch of superheroes? (laughs) I don't know who your favorite one is. Uh, I think mine's probably Batman. Um, But uh, of all the heroes, um, the reason I put it up is because the problem I was struggling with with that young man, Sam, was that I was trying to be the hero. I wanted to be the hero in the story, the one who rescued him, the one who saved him, that when he pulled himself together within 24 hours, right, because that was going to happen. I could say, yeah, that was me. That was my prayers. That was my work, my words. Didn't happen that way. Didn't happen that way. And the problem with being a hero is you try and do it in your own strength. You try and do it apart from the body of Christ, and you try and do it apart from the Holy Spirit. And so no wonder I ended up crashing and burning. It's interesting that that week I got a note card. It's funny, I found this this week totally unrelated to um, the sermon as I was preparing it. I was looking for something else. And in this book, I found the card that was sent to me by the supervisor the week that I met with Dan. I had a great supervisor, by the way. And she met with me, and she wrote in the card how grateful she was, how thankful she was that I had taken on Dan as this person to look out for. And um, she then wrote, though, perhaps you gave a little bit too much of yourself. She was a wise older woman who understood that I was trying to play the hero apart from the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis, though, writes this, because it's not wrong to want to help someone, but it's wrong to do it for the wrong motives. He writes this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal, Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. The call to be a part of the church is not convenient. It's a costly love. But the good news is we do it in community. It's why we have life groups, friends. It's why we gather each and every Sunday, not just as some optional extra lifestyle choice that you make, but because we are family. We are the body of Christ together. 
We are to carry each other's burdens as the Lord carries ours. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come move in our hearts. Strengthen us, Lord Jesus. Strengthen us to be the family that you have called us to be, a people who are not afraid to be vulnerable, but who do it in the right way, in community with others, in our life groups, in our church gathering on Sundays, being strengthened up, being nourished so that we can have the strength to go to the places that other places won't go, to be the person who can be depended on by someone going through crises in our lives. Help us to follow this call even when it is not convenient. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.